Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. 2022 has been a horror show in markets, a nightmare on Wall Street. But every crisis presents opportunities for investors. This week, we look at six different assets and ask if they may be about to rise from the grave. But are they a trick or a treat? And which are about to go pump in the night? And in today's dumb question of the week, what are zombie companies and will they ever die? Okay, let's get into it. So it's that time of year where everyone and their dog is doing a Halloween special. And if you thought we were above that kind of thing, well, you haven't been paying attention. (laughs) It was quite biblical, wasn't it, with the Ten Commandments? So now we've gone a bit pagan. (laughs) Yeah. We should really be doing this in our fancy dress costumes. Uh, What would you be going with this year, Roman? Um, Herman Munster, I think. I would like to do that. I thought you'd go with something really scary, something like a real horror show, like Andrew Bailey or Kathy Wood, (laughs) one of your your (laughs) favourites. So what we're actually going to do is look at six different assets which are potentially attractive. People are talking about them like, do they present good value right now and are they a buying opportunity? So the first of the six we're going to talk about is US small caps. So, Robin, let's just clarify what do we mean by US small caps, first of all. Now, generally, if you buy an index, so if you buy the S&P 500, those will be large cap companies. These are companies which have a lot of shares in issuance and the share price multiplied by the number of shares is a huge number. So many of the US companies are now, you know, in the trillion dollar mark in terms of market cap. Think of these as the kind of shambling behemoths of the stock market. And they've been doing very well until recently. But if you look at where all the growth comes from, it's going to be the small companies, which are growing much more rapidly. But of course, these are much more fragile companies because they don't have these kind of fortress balance sheets, huge revenues. So if there is a recession, they tend to suffer. If you're thinking things are really bad now and they're about to recover, then usually small caps are a good way to play that turnaround. And I've seen a lot of people talking about small caps at the moment because the valuations look a lot lower than for large caps and almost at historic lows, depending on which valuation measure you use. And also on the index, because there are different small cap indices in the US. There's a Russell 2000 index, but there's also the S&P 600 index. Now, there's a difference between the two. For example, the S&P 600 has some very strict inclusion criteria. In terms of financial viability, there has to be four consecutive quarters with positive earnings. That's profits. And the most recent quarter has to be positive. So it's kind of a small cap quality index indirectly. Yeah. And there are other kind of filters that they put in there for the S&P 600, but not for the Russell 2000. So, you know, you're really filtering out the junkiest of the junk. Or are you just filtering out early stage growth stocks? Because I notice when you look at, say, the forward PE ratios, the Russell 2000 is valued at a premium to the S&P 600. And is that because you're paying for growth, basically? Yeah, I mean, if there's the triumph of hope over experience, then yeah, you'd go for the companies which are pre-profit. But of course, we've seen that come very badly unstuck over the course of this year. So we're saying they're potentially cheap right now. Well, how cheap? How cheap are these small caps compared to the S&P 500, say? Well, if you look at the forward price to earnings ratio for small caps in the US, currently it's almost at 2008 levels. Not quite there yet, but not far off. 
Wow, so that's a real sort of discount opportunity, maybe, because 2008 was about as bad as it gets. It's about as bad as it got, certainly. But, you know, it could get worse. You never really know about that. But what you certainly know is that you're not buying it at a high price. You're buying it at a very low price relative to those forecast profits. Now, there's a big question as to whether those forecast profits are correct. They have been downgraded. If you look at the forecast of 2023, it's come down quite a bit over the course of this year. If there is a recession, I don't think that's priced in fully yet. I think there's still a little bit too much optimism, which means that it still could fall further. I mean, I guess my other question would be, if you're an analyst predicting these forward earnings, are you likely to be more accurate for the large caps where there's a lot more prominence, there's a lot fewer of them, and then the small caps, maybe their earnings wiggle about a lot more, and it's just harder to predict, maybe. So is this an accurate predictor? There'll be less analysts covering it, certainly. I mean, if you look at some of the large caps like Tesla or Apple, there'll be so many analysts that cover the same stock and they all look at each other's estimates and there tends to be a kind of consensus mechanism. Whereas you could have one crazy analyst for a small cap that says, oh, look, it's going to go to the moon, you know? (laughs) Yeah. They do do their best and they still apply very sophisticated analysis to the forecast, even if it's a small cap. But you're right. I mean, the coverage is smaller. And I guess the thing to say is, historically, over the long, long term, small caps do tend to have an outperformance bonus, don't they? And so maybe if we're buying it at the right time, we will outperform. Yeah, and the absolute banger, actually, if you look historically, is small cap value. So this is another filter applied to small caps where you look at a subset of them where they're looking particularly cheap. Now, historically, that's done incredibly well. But of course, Recently, and here I'm talking about several years, it's been a huge underperformer. But historically, you know, that's been an incredible factor. It's kind of been the opposite of what's done really well over the last 10 years. So the last 10 years has been large cap growth. And we're talking about small cap value. It's the opposite on both of those things. (laughs) But it's interesting, if you look at those forward PEs again, so the Russell 2000 forward PE right now is 18.6, according to Yardani. Whereas if you put the value filter on top, so Russell 2000 value, that's at 15.3. So it's quite a bit lower. And that is almost as low as it's been in the last 20 years. I think it did briefly get lower in the early stages of the pandemic. So very cheap there as well. You know, I think that at the moment there are these pockets of opportunity. And that's definitely one of them. Okay, so let's nail this format, Roman. It brings us to the question at hand. US small caps, trick or treat? Definitely a treat. I'd like some. I think I'm going to get some. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're going to buy them yourself, are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was in the market crash shopping list. You know, I'm definitely going to buy them. But not a recommendation. Everyone do your own research, make your own decisions. Don't copy what Ramin does. Certainly not, as we're about to discover later on. (laughs) How about you, Michael? Yeah, I think a treat for me as well. I would buy small cap value. Okay. I'd go with that maths. That shows massive outperformance over the last 50 years. And it is uh, almost historic low, so why not? Oh, so you're a contrarian. I always knew it. (laughs) Now, our second asset class today is Chinese stocks. Now, (laughs) they have had an atrocious year across all the different indices in China. And then added on top of that, I think yesterday, which was Monday for us, had one of the biggest one-day sell-offs in Chinese stocks of all time. What's going on here, Roman? Now, this is because of President Xi's reappointment as the supreme leader in China. It looks like he's kind of surrounded himself by people who are definitely not going to push back on any of his policies. 
And those policies, of course, remember, have been quite anti-market and also not necessarily pro-growth. Things like the zero COVID policy, where I think a more sane approach would have been to not be so strict with the lockdowns, particularly in the economically sensitive areas in the tier one cities. It was interesting that they delayed the release of the growth figures during the Communist Party conference last week. They have actually come out now and they're like mildly disappointing in most ways. But it was quite a thing to just delay it. So no, you'll wait for the figures. <laughs> yeah. But I think if you look at the price of copper, which is a kind of indirect read on Chinese growth, that's been tanking. So markets are kind of telling a different story <laughs> to the uh, official numbers. And this is always another worry with Chinese equity, which is how reliable is the data and how transparent is the market? But the reason we're talking about it today is because it does look extraordinarily cheap by any measure. Yeah. And, you know, always these things are cheap for a reason. But it's interesting. I was speaking to a client last week who was saying that a very large investment bank had been very pro-China and trying to push China as an investment. And this led him to put a pretty big weight on China in his portfolio. Now, of course, I've bought China via KWeb one of my most disastrous investments ever. <laughs> Robin, every few months we talk about K-Web, it's always invariably down another 20%. And you're always saying, I'm still holding it. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm still, I mean, it's almost gone to zero now. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like, I don't know why I keep it, just to kind of remind myself how bad I was at choosing things. You were just keeping it for this Halloween episode, really. Yeah. And it has been an absolute uh, nightmare. And it's down further. Apparently, it sold off about 12% overnight. You look, I think the whole narrative, which was that China is cheap, but modernising and it has huge growth potential and it's opening up to international markets and there's a more free flow of capital into China. You know, all of that narrative has unwound very quickly. I mean, there's an incredible stat, which is if you look at the indices tracking Chinese equity, so the CSI 300, the Hang Seng Chinese Enterprises Index, the MSCI China Broad Index, they're all below the level they were in 2010. They've had no growth for the last 12 years. So the question now, if you are an investor, is, is that a huge opportunity? Is this going to bounce back? And whenever you see a value investment, you should always be thinking, well, is this the kind of thing which will bounce back? And indices generally do. But here what we're talking about is a country which might do a Russia and a country which is so large that if it did do a Russia, i.e. if it started to not care at all what international opinion was and invaded Taiwan, then that would be a colossal negative for global equity markets, not just for the Chinese index, but for everybody. I think in that situation, you would be looking at stranded assets like you saw in Russia. You know, people just had to write down their equities to zero effectively. But I don't think it necessarily needs that to be you know, disastrous returns going forward for China. So we've seen over the last year, the administration in China punishing, I think it's fair to say, its own technology companies, which has not been good for your K-Web fund, I'm sorry to say, Roman, Absolutely. You know, Alibaba, Tencent, they've all come under the thumb of the Communist Party. We've seen the property bubble start to implode, which is obviously so important for the Chinese economy. Some people say like 30% of the economy plus. And like you say now, we've seen Xi Jinping really consolidate his power and yeah, potentially take China in a more ideological direction going forward, maybe less pro-growth. And on top of all of that, we are seeing what I would describe as a step up in the trade wars. 
and now with the national security bent, so the US has brought in strong, strong restrictions on chip exports to China, and have even sort of banned Americans from working on Chinese microchip designs and manufacturing, which is going to have a big impact, I would have thought. Let me just play devil's advocate here, or what would be the Halloween phrase? It's not really a proper festival, is it? There isn't really a coming. <laughs> only for Americans, <laughs> <isn't it>? <laughs> <laughs> To play pumpkin's advocate here, what would be the bull case for China now? Well, firstly, you could say that they are still open to international markets. They still do need to raise capital. And if that's what they want, then they can't be anti-market. It has been hugely beneficial to them to have that opening up of their markets in terms of getting capital into their largest companies. So if they are pragmatic, then that'll continue. And secondly, we've said that it's anti-growth, some of the policies that President Xi's adopted. I think it's about prosperity, common prosperity. That's what he's been touting as a kind of ideology. Now, ultimately, growth is good for common prosperity. In fact, you could say that GDP is common prosperity, or at least one measure of it. So if he is really for common prosperity, then he'll go for things which do promote growth. And, you know, you could say that the chip ban will force China to innovate internally and develop its own manufacturing processes, which design these kind of five nanometer chips, which are really fast. And then they'll rely less on the West. Yeah. So in a way, you could say that this is a positive. I don't buy it. My fear around Xi, whatever the official doctrine says, is that maybe he's just quite mediocre. Like he's clearly (laughs) amazingly good at consolidating power in the Communist Party and rising to the top and keeping his loyal lieutenants close to him. And we've seen this throughout history, right, in other autocratic regimes, that the person who rises to the top and becomes the sort of head of the state and the figurehead is not necessarily the best administrator or visionary. Can you think of another country where that's happened recently, Michael? (laughs) I can think of many. (laughs) But if I was to make a bull case, I'm just going to look at the numbers, right? Because I can't predict politics, and I especially can't predict politics in China. So what I would say is that if you look at the MSCI China index, and we go back to forward PE ratios, it's less than 10. It's at 9.55. And that was at the end of September. It'll be lower than that now, given the sell-off we've had in the last month. So yeah, if you are bullish on China, now's the time, right? (laughs) How much lower can it go? A lot lower. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, sorry. We'll talk about KWEB again, won't we, in January? But look, another way to play this is to look at their long-term policies, because they do have them. You know, they have five-year plans, and they pretty much stick to them. And in terms of investing in their own infrastructure, they've been incredibly good. And you do get the state collaborating with companies in order to roll out infrastructure for things like 5G. Those things didn't happen by magic. And it's not a coincidence that the US has been slow to roll out 5G, much slower than China. Why is that? Well, because of this collaboration between government and private companies. So look, you know, they do do things right when it comes to internal infrastructure. So if you go for the right things and you manage to read between the lines in the five-year plan to look at which companies will benefit from their long-term policies, then you could do a pretty good job, I think, doing quite well with Chinese equity. Okay, let's cut to the chase. Chinese equity, trick or treat? Well, it's been a horror show for me. But look, for other people getting in now, I think it might be a treat. 
Okay, I'm going to file a dissenting opinion and say this is another trick. <laughs> I just think the risks are too big. You've got the major tail risks of my equity is going to go to zero because there's going to be sort of capital controls between the West and China. And then you've got the sort of everyday risk that policy just continues as it has been. But it does look cheap. There's no denying it looks cheap. But this is why I put it in the fund portfolio, right? This is why I didn't bet the farm on China. Because, you know, I wasn't completely convinced that it would be a good investment. I mean, you have no emerging markets at all in your core portfolio, do you? No, zero. Which is quite unusual these days. So you can take a flyer in the fund portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a diminishing flyer right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. falling with style. Okay, our third potentially attractive investment this Halloween is tips. Now, Roman, explain to us, what are tips? Now, these are US inflation-linked government bonds. It stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. The idea here is that unlike a normal bond where you give $100 to Uncle Sam, he pays you some coupons for, say, three years, and then you get your $100 back. So that's a normal government bond. It's called a nominal bond. With an inflation-protected bond, what happens is that the value of the coupons and the principal that you're repaid inflates with some inflation index. This means that instead of getting 100 back, you could get, you know, substantially more. And I guess the interesting and counterintuitive thing about tips this year, do you think, oh, inflation's high, tips have surely done well. Nope, they've done atrociously yep. and they're down something like 20%. So why is that? Well, the thing is, the inflation-linked bonds are still exposed to yield. It's actually the real yield. And real yields have gone up hugely over the course of this year in the US. So that's why they've gone down in price. So you still have duration exposure. If real yields rise, you will lose money. And the longer the duration of the TIPS fund which you buy or the individual TIPS bond, the greater your loss will be. Conversely, if yields come down, long duration TIPS will give you a bigger boost. Yeah. And when we're looking at it, so they've had a bad year, real yields have risen dramatically in the US. Does this now present a buying opportunity then? Are yields high and potentially going to fall over the next decade? The thing is, if you look at real yield, it's roughly the same as real growth. So the question you should be asking yourself is, will real growth start to fall over the next decade? Or will it just start bobbing around at around, you know, 2 to 3% like it was before the pandemic? Which I think is a more likely option. Are we going to see real yields rise massively from here? Probably not. You know, we've already seen a big increase. For example, if I look at the US 10-year real yield, it's gone from minus 1% in 2021, very rapidly over the course of this year, up to over 1.6%. So that's a huge increase over a very short period of time. And that's why the tips have been hammered. So the question is, is that pricing in enough growth now? You know, I think 2% growth for the US is actually quite reasonable. Well, here's my question. I've heard you say before that government bonds are potentially looking attractive now with higher yields. And I think you were talking about nominal bonds. So is the question of whether to go for the nominal bond or the inflation-linked bond, whether you believe inflation will come down sharply as the market's kind of pricing in at the moment, or if it will stay elevated for, you know, five or 10 years. I mean, I was talking about a kind of tactical play, because I think people are overestimating growth in the US at the moment. And also, I think inflation might surprise on the downside. 
And if that happens, well, that'll push up the value of bonds, long duration bonds in particular. That was another little punt which I had, which was to buy some nominal bonds. You could have done it with tips too. But of course, if inflation comes down, then the tips aren't going to be a particularly good way to play it. But what if you're wrong? I know it's unlikely. Oh, no, it is likely. Because <laughs> I think inflation is more likely to surprise on the upside. Like I think there's a real chance central banks get bullied or forced by things breaking in the financial system to loosen policy prematurely, which would allow inflation to stay high. I think in certain countries that's possible. I think in the US it's unlikely because the Fed will remain independent and they're going to really squeeze inflation till the pips pop. I think that it's unlikely they're going to turn around unless there's something absolutely catastrophic. And if it did happen, it would be a very targeted operation, just like the Bank of England. So the five-year break-even inflation rate, which is kind of what the market is pricing for the next five years and saying this is the kind of average expectation. Yeah. So the break-even inflation rate in the US is 2.7%. Now, with inflation up near 10% right now, does that not seem kind of low to you? Well, just look at all of the prices that feed into US inflation right now. You've got gasoline prices and energy prices, which cause it to shoot up. All of those have now gone into reverse. Shelter is still high and food is still surging. But again, you know, I think a lot of that is due to transportation costs and energy costs indirectly. So I think it's simply now a matter of time until this feeds through into the year-on-year numbers. The upward impulse on inflation has now subsided and is actually going into reverse. So, you know, do I think in five years' time, inflation is going to be above 2.7%? Probably not. You know, I think it's going to be well below that on average over the next five years. But that's what makes a market when people take the other side of it. Yeah, I'm taking the other side, I think. Really? Let's sum it up then. Trick or treat, what our tip's going to be. I think this one's a trick. I've done this, but I've done it for nominal bonds because I think inflation's going to surprise on the downside. Yeah, we're going to disagree again, Robin. <laughs> I'm going for a treat here. And especially if you're approaching retirement, I think it might be a treat because I think there's a tail risk that inflation does stay unexpectedly high for the medium term. And as we've said before, inflation is kind of like the kryptonite, right? When you're retired, it can really lower your standard of living quickly. So I think this is maybe a good tail risk hedge to have in your portfolio. Clearly not as the lion's share of it, but just in there as a kind of, if worst comes to the worst, I've still got my tips. Well, this is why. I mean, if you look at things like Vanguard's target retirement funds, they start to move into inflation-linked bonds as you get closer to retirement and as you go into retirement. Because at that point, you do want to keep constant exposure to something which gives you inflation linkage in terms of capital gain. There's a big difference here between a tactical play in your fund portfolio, short-term, bit of a punt, you know, you might be wrong, and something which is like a strategic thing where if you're retiring and you want to keep it there, yeah, I think inflation-linked bonds make sense. Certainly they're a much better buy now than they were in January. Oh, yeah. Okay, and now for our fourth asset, commodities. One of the few things that has done well this year, but it has started to dip recently. Is it now an opportunity to get on that train we should have got on a year ago? Oh, the one which I actually got right, which I sold at exactly the right time. Yeah, well, I do get it right sometimes. Oh, yeah, you do. You get it right more (laughs) often than not. Okay. So originally, the idea was that we were entering this commodity super cycle, which is a way of saying that there's going to be a long-term trend for commodity prices to increase. And this was all to do with undersupply, but also a lack of investment in infrastructure to produce commodities. 
And of course, with energy prices, that was an unforeseen boon for these commodity sector funds because, you know, energy prices surged and that just pushed these commodity funds up a lot. And we seem to be in an interesting place now with commodities, particularly around energy. So we've seen OPEC get even more political, if that was possible, and kind of side with Russia and decide on a supply cut for oil. And we've seen in Europe, there's been all this concern about gas prices. But actually now, if you look at the next day delivery price in Holland, for example, gas has gone negative. Yeah, because it's been a very mild winter and there's been a huge oversupply. And then once the gas storage facilities fill up, there's nowhere to put the gas. So you have to sell it in the spot market, which is like the today market, if you like. There's loads of ships just queued up outside Europe's borders full of natural gas. Like, I'm going to have to pay someone now to take this gas off my hands. (laughs) Which you ordered. (laughs) But they call this injecting it into the spot market. And the spot market can only take so much because, you know, if there's not much demand, it's still quite mild out there. I've just planted my cyclamen yesterday. So, yeah, it was quite mild in the garden. And countries like Germany have managed to successfully bring down their gas usage year on year by I think something like 15%, which is incredible, really. And in fact, I just put out a tweet about the UK gas price, because the thing with the futures market is it has a delivery point. So the UK price will be different from the Dutch price, and that'll be different from the US price, which is for delivery at the so-called Henry Hub delivery point. So there will be a big difference in prices according to where the gas is delivered. And in the UK, the price has come down from its peak of around £788 per therm. That was at the end of August to 183 right now. That's a fall of 77%. I have seen people who know what they're talking about here saying this might be a red herring. And it's just kind of a symptom of the fact we've tried to store up gas so quickly and build it up before the winter. And when we actually get into the cold months, then we'll probably see gas prices climb significantly again, depending on how cold the winter is, obviously. It's interesting. The guy who wrote the FT article about this yesterday, David Shepard, whose Twitter handle is Oil Shepherd, replied to my tweet and he said, I'd be cautious, sadly. Prices are still extremely high for Q1 and Q2 of next year. Once the government cap expires for many households in April, bills still expected to rise. We don't know yet how far up the income scale support will be targeted post-April. So for many countries, the government policy in terms of protecting vulnerable households will also have a big impact on prices. Yeah, and it's also, I think, true that just don't get too distracted by something dipping negative. Like the oil price obviously dipped negative during the pandemic and then oil quickly rallied back to over $100 a barrel, right? That's the thing with commodities, isn't it? It can turn around quickly. But you can buy ETFs, which give you just exposure to gas prices via the futures market or via swaps. So, I mean, if you do want to take a punt on this, you can do that. Are we going to start hedging our own gas bills, are we? (laughs) (laughs) But there are some really dodgy funds here, which kind of give you like five times daily long, five times daily short natural gas prices. I mean, who would ever want such a crazy thing? But look, there are some which give you kind of sane natural gas exposure, and those have been falling. So if you think it's going to go up, you can always take a punt by buying one of those. But just be careful about which contract it's giving you exposure to. Is it US, Henry Hub? Is it Holland, TTF? Or is it UK? I like the sound of Henry Hub. (laughs) It's my favourite of those. It does sound friendly, doesn't it? Yeah, old Henry Hub. And the other thing with commodities that you mentioned earlier, actually, when it came to copper, but I think it's true of energy commodities as well, is that so much of it is driven by Chinese demand. Like if we're seeing Chinese growth cool 
and uncertainty there, that's not good, is it necessarily, for commodity prices? Yeah, for example, for copper, more than half of the global supply is bought by China. So they're an incredibly important demand source for that commodity. And that's why it's tanked in value over the course of this year. So if growth is weak, and we are entering a period of weak growth in China particularly, then you know that's going to have a negative effect on commodities, which could be quite long-lasting. It really depends how long the soft patch lasts for China. And I guess we should quickly mention that commodities isn't just metals and oil and gas, is it? There's all other stuff in there, like um, agricultural goods. And things like softs, things like orange juice, all sorts of commodities. Usually the focus, if you look at the weighting for some of these benchmarks, it's usually very heavily tilted to energy. But they also have industrial metals like copper and aluminium, and then some soft as well, agricultural products too. And is one idea that's behind that super cycle thesis that we've had such low investment in commodity infrastructure over the last decade. So, you know, in refineries and extraction capabilities and mines, but, you know, partly because of the glut of commodities we had after the financial crisis made profit margins slim, but also because, you know, ESG concerns meant it was less attractive. And so now we're like, where are we going to get all these metals from? Where are we going to get all this oil from? I think that's true. And I think, you know, starvation of capital going into this sector is one of the drivers behind the underinvestment. And the fact that it just wasn't very sexy. You know, who really gets excited about copper miners? Warren Buffett gets excited about it, but then he's not very sexy, is he really? Oh, well, that depends who you ask, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be someone's kind of kink, but... <laughs> Just don't ask Laura about Charlie Munger. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, really? <laughs> She's got a type, hasn't she? Charlie Munger and... Uh, Steady. What was the other one? Jeremy Grantham, I think. Grantham, yeah. She's dead keen on Jeremy. <laughs> so, commodities. Here we are. Trick or treat? I think at the moment, still trick. But I think some of them could be a treat. For example, gas. And the other one's copper. You know, I kind of like copper. I'm going to agree with you. I think it's also a trick. Though there's one thing that niggles away at me, kind of in the same way as tips, that if inflation is going to surprise on the upside, maybe it would be nice to have a few commodities in our portfolio. I think the volatility puts me off as well. Yeah, I mean, this is why people generally shy away from them. And, you know, I'd certainly keep away from those multiple two times daily, five times daily commodity funds. I mean, they can blow up quickly. We saw that with the three times daily levered nickel ETFs. Oh, that was funny. The ones which literally it kind of knocked out one on the way up and then the other one on the way down. It was great. Yeah, it moved by more than 33% in a day and blew up the entire fund. <laughs> <laughs> but that'll serve you right for doing three times daily levered nickel. Who needs that? <laughs> And the fifth asset we're talking about today is Ethereum, or to be more specific, Ether, which is the native cryptocurrency of the Ethereum blockchain, though everyone calls it Ethereum. <laughs> I'm surprised you put this in, actually, Michael, because I know you're not a crypto fan. No, I know very little about crypto, which makes me think I shouldn't be talking about it because I'll probably say something like series of tubes. Do you remember <laughs> what the uh, senator, the aging senator said about the internet? And he got stick for it for ages. And I'll probably say something dumb like that. But anyway, <laughs> I think the thing that caught my attention with Ethereum is it's down 72% since its all-time high, which was on November the 10th, 2021. 
So if you believe in it, now is presumably the time to start buying. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about buying things which have crashed, if you are a contrarian, is make sure it's a thing which is going to recover. Now, I know that people have a kind of semi-religious belief in things like cryptocurrency, so they're convinced that it's going to recover. But just think about the reasons why that might happen. What Ethereum has going for it is that it's widely used as a kind of substrate, a computational substrate for many different types of app which exist on top of a blockchain. So that's a definite positive for it. However, it is a cryptocurrency which has no cash flow generation ability. Now you can stake it. Now that after the merge, it's actually secured by proof of stake, you get money for holding your Ethereum and staking it to secure the chain. The actual yield you get for that is less than it is for gilts and treasuries. Right. So I think, you know, that's definitely a negative. And that's another reason why things which generate very little income or no income now look much less attractive. Because a risk-free rate which is higher sweeps away all of the kind of junk that starts to exist once you get zero interest rates. So the reason I included Ethereum in this list of potentially attractive assets is because of the merge and the publicity that generated. So one of the big risks, I think, when you've looked at any cryptocurrency is political risk and regulation risk. And some of that is obviously because of concerns over money laundering and loss of state control. But some of it, I think quite fairly, was around the use of energy and environmental concerns. Now, this move from proof of work to proof of stake just overnight dropped the consumption of energy by the Ethereum network hugely. So I read in The Economist that it's the equivalent to the energy use of Chile, the country. (laughs) So that's just disappeared overnight. Obviously, it's spread around the world. But That's a big deal and potentially lowers the relative regulatory risk of Ethereum versus Bitcoin, would you say? Oh, definitely. Especially now that energy is such a political issue, trying to use energy for mining has now become much less cost effective for starters in countries where energy prices have surged. But all the people that were saying that, oh, no, the energy use is irrelevant, it's just a red herring, you don't hear that much anymore because I think that argument is really not going to fly. Trying to argue that mining your Bitcoin is more important than heating the house of a pensioner, I think that's pretty unlikely to be an argument someone's going to make. And I think the other thing with Ethereum versus Bitcoin is people would refer to Bitcoin as the digital gold, which I kind of like actually as an analogy, because like gold, it doesn't really do anything, just sits there being shiny (laughs) and doesn't, you know, generate any cash flows or anything like that, has no real utility. Whereas Ethereum... I've heard it described more as the kind of digital oil. So it kind of powers these different smart contracts and apps and does have many real use cases. I agree. I think that's why many people prefer Ethereum to Bitcoin. So what do you think there, Michael? Is this going to be a trick or a treat? Well, as it's a cryptocurrency, I'm still classing it as a trick. But if I was to buy cryptocurrency, I would probably be buying Ethereum. (laughs) Is that a good caveat? (laughs) You should never really caveat trick or treats because that just ends up with your house being egged doubly strongly. (laughs) Well, I think trick for me as well. I think interest rates are the biggie here. And I think if interest rates remain high, which they will for some time, Ethereum's really going to struggle. And so will other cryptocurrencies. And that brings us to our sixth and final asset class, which is annuities. And we're specifically talking about annuities in the UK here. So let's start what's an annuity, first of all, because something we actually haven't talked about before, which is weird considering your pension craft. (laughs) It's only because investment craft was taken, Michael. 
<laughs> okay. It's nothing to do with pensions. But look, an annuity, if you retire, you've got a couple of choices. One of them is to create a pot, an investment pot, and then gradually draw it down. You sell a little bit each month in order to pay for your living expenses. And there you're taking market risk, right? So if markets crash, then you have to think about, oh, what shall I sell? And it's quite stressful, potentially. The alternative is to buy a stream of cash flows from a third party, which are inflation linked. So you don't have to worry about prices rising. They last until you die. Whereas with a pension pot, you can pass it on in your will. And then you don't have to worry about markets crashing. Then it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. So it's kind of, are you going to take that pot of money you've built up in your retirement fund and invest it yourself and draw it down throughout your retirement? Or are you going to take that lump sum and just give it to an insurance company effectively who are then going to pay you cash flows? Now, the interesting thing about annuities is that they became very unpopular, I would say, after the pension reforms in, when was it, about 2015, I think, where you could do this drawdown yourself. And also because guilt yields were so low that the annuity rates were also so low. So you'd be handing over this lump sum for a kind of small amount of money each year. But what we've seen as guilt yields have surged, the amount of money you can get as an annuity on your pension pot has also surged. If you plot the graphs, they're very tightly linked, guilt yields and annuity rates. And that's for a very simple reason, which is that the almost risk-free way for the insurance company to pay you that lifetime annuity is to invest in those fixed income products which are generating that income. You know, we've seen with defined benefit funds in the UK that if you try to go above that, things can go slightly wrong very quickly. (laughs) So, you know, annuities are the kind of really safe version where you get paid effectively the fixed income rate, which is risk-free, generated by government debt. And that's become much more attractive. So things which were kind of ruled out are now not sexy, I wouldn't say, but a runner, certainly. So if you look at annuity rates and what's happened to them, if you had a pension pot of £100,000 and you were going to hand this over to an annuity company, prior to 2022, you'd have been looking at getting around £5,000 per year for handing that lump sum over. That's if you're a 65-year-old and there's lots of caveats, but as an average. Whereas now that's surged to around £7,500. So it's a lot higher. I guess the disadvantage if you're just about to retire is the lump sum you have to give over has probably fallen quite a lot. (laughs) I mean, the other alternative is you can, in your own pension pot, buy fixed income products. You can create your own bond ladder, for example, but it is quite technical and certainly most people won't want to be bothered with that. Here's my question. If we believe in efficient markets and that these annuity companies are pricing risk effectively, should it really make any difference if we buy an annuity, right? Shouldn't we just be getting the kind of fair value for what our pension pot is at any one time? And you do. I mean, that's the beauty of markets, which is that they do reprice information very quickly and annuity rates have shot up very quickly. So buying an annuity or not buying an annuity, in theory, is a neutral move in my mind. Yeah, you should always have to kind of scratch your head to think about things. If it was really obvious, then market prices would move. So to summarise then, UK annuities, a trick or a treat? I'd say trick because, you know, I'd much rather manage my own and I'd rather hand it on to my family when I pass away. And I'm so far off retirement that I have no opinion on this. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like to join the conversation with like-minded people about the true value of assets and your approach to investing, then why not join our community? It's very lively. We have a Slack channel where we discuss these things and you can learn more at pensioncraft.com. 
Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what are zombie companies and will they ever die? So I think we have mentioned zombie companies kind of in passing before, but let's really nail this down. What are they? So these are the living dead in the sense that they're companies that really shouldn't still exist, but which do because they can't service their debt. So how are they still in existence if they can't service their debt? Well, remember that even if you can't service your debt, you can kind of stave off default for some time because you can sell assets or if interest rates are very low, you can just roll over your debt continually at very low cost. But as soon as interest rates rise, and this is the risk-free rate, or you enter a soft patch where your revenue falls, then you're very vulnerable to getting liquidated. And the claim is that the number of zombie companies in the economy, because of the low interest rates we've seen since the financial crisis, has just surged, right? There's way more of these companies than there used to be. So there are lots of tweets doing the rounds on Twitter where you can see the count of the number of zombies being extremely high. So lots of people have been talking about the zombie apocalypse. You know, it's been a, a long time coming, but eventually I think it's going to happen. And now's the time when it's more likely because A, an economic soft patch, B, interest rates, risk-free rates have doubled. Also, credit spreads are widening. So the all-in cost of funding for these zombie companies has surged. Yeah, potentially falling revenues and profits at the same time as higher debt costs is not going to be a good story for zombie companies. I did see a note from Goldman Sachs which said potentially the number of true zombies is overestimated because it includes a lot of growthy companies which in theory can't service their debt but are growing so fast that they'll still be able to raise capital. So if the loss is shrinking very rapidly because the turnover is increasing very rapidly, yeah, sure, that wouldn't be a zombie. Because you can still raise equity as well as debt. Yeah, as long as people are still believers. But of course, that's been in short supply as well this year enough credulous people who are willing to give you equity capital. And I guess the other question around these zombie companies is with rising interest rates causing debt servicing costs to surge, are we going to see actually the zombification of far more companies as more and more can't afford to pay their debts? So if a company was not a zombie at 2%, but is a zombie at 5%, if there's going to be a net reduction in zombies, <laughs> depends on whether more zombies are going to be created than are killed off. Yeah, I think the threshold for zombification has been passed now in terms of interest rates. So I agree. I think that, you know, the number of zombies is now going to increase as a result. So just a more intense zombie apocalypse awaits. <laughs> I think so, yeah. And I guess finally, why do we care about these zombie companies? If they're surviving, albeit due to low interest rates, why, why is that a problem? Well, certain asset types depend on them. So, for example, junk bonds in the US probably have a fair share of zombies amongst them because, you know, those are the companies that are going to be paying the highest income. Also, a lot of the equity market is zombies. So if you look at the percentage of zombies, you know, if those companies go into liquidation, then it's going to affect a big chunk of the index. Remember, with equity, your recovery rate is zero, whereas at least with bonds, you know, you get a 40 percent, 20 percent recovery of your capital. The thing is, a lot of these zombies are very well loved. For example, I remember when Woolies disappeared on Amersham High Street. Woolworths. Yeah, Woolworths in the UK. And I used to go there with my son, so did my wife. You know, he used to like the sweets, the toys. It was really exciting for him. Pick and mix. Pick and mix were very good. Everyone talks about that. Yeah. No, I actually used to work for Woolworths on the entertainment desk when I was a student. And um, I just reassure you, I had very little to do with them going bankrupt. <laughs> 
And in the UK, of course, many pubs are kind of teetering on the edge because if they do have to pay higher energy costs, then a lot of them will become non-viable and will become zombies and may have to liquidate. So I think, you know, a lot of things which people like are zombies, but presumably they don't like it enough to spend more money there. That's the problem. But if we have the zombie apocalypse, presumably unemployment rises and maybe inflation falls with the higher unemployment? Yeah, I mean, the kind of combination of factors would be lower growth, lower demand, lots of zombies disappear, unemployment increases, demand falls, and then the cycle starts up again because things start to improve again. And some people say that it would be a very, very good thing if all these zombies started to disappear because perhaps they've been one of the factors behind the low productivity is that these companies are not doing a good job of growing. Obviously, that's why they're zombies. And so we've got kind of a misallocation of capital. Yeah, I mean, the idea of creative destruction, where things which are a poor allocation of capital disappear, and then you replace it with a kind of new, exciting, vibrant crop of new companies, kind of like a forest after it's burnt down, you get those new green shoots and a surge of growth. That's the hope anyway. But it's probably not a consolation for the people who lose their jobs or the people who want pick a mix. Nope. It's a pretty dire situation for those people. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.